Hello fellow Blue Earthers and welcome to another episode of The Pod. I'm Laura Nesbitt and this week I'm talking to Kate Larson, an expert when it comes to sustainability in supply chains. Kate has lived and worked all over Asia advising some of the biggest brands in the world on how they can improve their environmental, sustainability and social policies. She tells us how you, the consumer, can use your voice to hold big brands to account and help us understand why expensive doesn't necessarily mean more sustainable. Welcome, Kate. It's so lovely to have you on the pod today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to be here. What is it that you do? So I've been working in the sustainability field about 20 years and primarily in the area of responsible sourcing. So... That's looking at where things are made and how they're made and the environmental and social impacts of that and worked in various corporate roles, um, as well as stints in orgs like Human Rights Watch on initiatives to improve conditions in the way our stuff gets made, uh, mostly with the apparel sector. And these days I do advisory and training in particular and how other companies and people can do more of that. Wow. Okay. So corporate social responsibility, what is that actually about? I think we would call that the old way of talking from about 20 years ago about what these days we put under the sustainability umbrella. Um, but it's really that business have a responsibility for environmental and social impacts and that they'll do things about it. And we've had a really positive shift in the past five or 10 years to CSR often being a bit of a tick box, siloed corner of the organization, a lot of frustration into these days. The investor world has termed, got the term, which Mike Barry mentioned on his podcast with you, environmental social governance, ESG and sustainability. And that's really brought these issues more to the attention of CEOs and leaders of business. And then also a lot of smaller businesses who, you know, we see at the Blue Earth Summit and um, who are really paving the way and giving examples of how businesses can be more sustainable. So corporate social responsibility is just the sort of big old corporate way of talking about the same stuff, essentially. <laughs> These days I get called in to talk about a lot of the same things, um, but in a, in a more high level way under the sustainability and ESG framework and another angle on it, which would be called human rights due diligence, which companies are increasingly required to do. So there's a piece in there, I just referenced human rights due diligence on labor standards. So a lot of people listening will be thinking, oh, does that mean fair trade? That's how we sort of saw this get going. We see companies going a lot further than that, or at least having more integrated programs to to work with their suppliers on improving labor standards for people around the world who don't earn living wage and you know may be exploited or in the worst cases in forced labor or child labor. So causing remediation of that and making sure you're not complicit in that as a be it a small or a large company. And I raise that because it's super important to a lot of the listeners to Blue Earth Summit because we saw a lot of apparel companies, a lot of people making the gear we love to wear, you know, right through to to wetsuits and surfboards and how they get made, which, you know, I live here in Newquay and Cornwall these days. So that's what's hot on our mind um, when it comes to Blue Earth. But I've done a lot of work over the years with a lot of the outdoors brands in my various roles and, and, and industry initiatives where everybody's working to improve conditions. But yeah, it's a growing movement. There's been a lot of work for 20 years, but it's almost like some companies did a lot and some companies did nothing. 
And now we're seeing this shift where uh, laws are causing at least all of the big companies to do a lot. And we also see a lot of small companies who, you know, build themselves from the start of, of trying to do the right thing, which is, you know, the Finisteres and Patagonias of the world. So why do you think the shift has kind of accelerated in the last five years? There's two angles to this, and there's increasing overlap, we see. So I mentioned environmental and social. So the environmental side, obviously, climate change is on everybody's mind, and that's putting things on the agenda and fortunately put it on the agenda for very senior business and, and policy leaders in society, although we all know it's not enough. They're talking and there's not enough passing of laws that will cause all businesses to do the right thing to to lower their emissions, etc. But an overlap with that is the reason we need action on climate change is because it most impacts people in developing countries. We're really lucky that Climate change can have massive impacts for us, us living in the developed world, so to speak. But people in Bangladesh are losing their villages right now with ocean rises um, and with increased storms and things like that. So that's where the overlap with human rights comes. And so what I see then is that then, for example, Bangladeshis then need work because they're in desperate circumstances of their livelihoods being destroyed, their farming being destroyed because of sea rises and weather pattern changes and climate change. And we see this in Africa as well, that farming's getting a lot harder and a lot more desertification. And people are migrating for other work. And in that process of migrating, they become vulnerable to, at times, unscrupulous agents who offer what seems like a great job. And if we take Bangladeshis, they'll travel to get a job in Malaysia um, in a factory that makes all of our tech, for example, but also maybe a factory making our apparel. And they're charged agent fees and they can't leave and they're in what's a bonded labor, modern slavery situation. So there's a lot of work companies are doing around that and a lot of law changes, but a lot more work needed to deal with, um, you know, people think these issues of slavery have gone away. And actually, we have the opposite, which is that factors like climate change are causing more human rights risks than we had before when coupled with the ability to travel around the world more easily and things. This is where our things get made. Even if you do production in the UK, which would be fantastic, raw materials are still coming from around the world. They're still coming from India. They're still coming from China. And we're all part of what happens in the world and it has implications for all of us. Should it be the case in an ideal world that brands own their own factories? That's where you're absolutely taking ownership. Um, look, it's really difficult. If you or I wanted to start a small brand like some of the people we know have done, and, and I've tried to do a few years back in my own career, you know, where, where would you have the capital, the money to actually build a factory which might cost half a million, a million more dollars? <laughs> so that's the challenge is everyone wants to sell stuff and has great ideas and design. Um, but ultimately, yeah, if you're a big company, a really positive move. It's very nascent. I'm seeing is of big, very big brands saying, well, actually, maybe we should own a few more of our own operations, our own production. So it's, it's early days on that. But in principle, that is the main way to have full control of environmental and, and worker conditions impacts. You know, for sure that you're not polluting the air, or the water, if you're managing it, you can get 
pretty good. Um, you know, you can make good efforts to verify similar with a key supplier, but when you've got lots of them, that you know, is a lot of work to do. So. Yeah, quick answer is yes. <laughs> it's a great practice, but I'm just, I'm also someone who is really pragmatic. And, you know, this world of sustainability, we can be, we can have our moments of being depressed that things are not the way we want, we know they should be. But at the same time, we can get back into the pragmatism of and get inspired with just, just advocating the solutions and, you know, I say that for the listeners because it does have an impact. There's things we've advocated in this industry of sustainability, so to speak, 10 years ago. We were all frustrated and depressed it wasn't happening. And I'm now seeing it happening at scale. And I'm going, oh, my goodness, wow, we never really dreamed it would actually happen. So, you know, stay positive is my... <laughs> so to answer your question again, yeah, maybe we'll see a lot more companies owning their own operations in the next few years. And and that would, to me, also align to that question on reshoring, on home shoring. So again, you know, we see leaders who will try to make the product closer to the market. So here in the UK, have a UK factory, Rapa Nui, Finisterre, etc. But that's not only needed because then we can monitor the labor conditions better and ensure people really are treated better, um, but also the carbon, the environmental footprint. I mean, it's it's not just the carbon footprint of those ships, which currently often are still polluting out diesel emissions as they ship that product around the world. But th there's also marine impacts for people listening who care about the ocean. So that whole piece on reshoring and, and owning your own, I'm a big fan of that model. <laughs> and, um, we, it's, it's so nascent. It's so early days to go back to the old ways. But I hope, I hope we see that in the next 10 years or so. Just from being interested in startups and apparel I started um, in a sportswear design degree before I moved to philosophy and I uh, did some copywriting for a startup but they they kind of saw a huge shift during lockdown actually where the dream was to bring manufacturing back to the UK um, <laughs> and uh, and it does it seems to have gained some kind of traction but what are kind of like the walls if you like or the the holes in the journey that make bringing manufacturing back to countries you know really difficult so if every country in the world was to have their own from, you know, the really sexy design position to like sourcing the materials. Where are all the difficulties? Great question again. Look, the reality is, do you know anybody who really wants to work in a shoe factory in the UK? Because, you know, that's my first, obviously cost, but the cost sort of aligns with the worker desire as well. You know, I've been into factories across Asia, pretty close to hundreds of them many times. And, and I speak Chinese. So when it was in China, I'd be interviewing workers and in Japan where there are migrants from China and people are happy to have this job. And if you go to their village to this day, there's still significant poverty, even though, you know, things have been improving. So yes, there's things about their factory jobs. They want improved. They want to be paid on time. They want to be paid the legal minimum wage in their country and their overtime rates. They want to be treated fairly and, and without discrimination and not have verbal abuse and all these things. They're, they want their canteen food to be good and they want their dormitories to be better. <laughs> and that's all the stuff we work on. And they want the right to raise their voice for those 
basic conditions. But at the end of the day, they're going great. I'm earning so much more than my parents earned back in the, in the farm in the village. And that's, that's changing a bit in China, for example. They don't want to work 80 hours a week, even though they're often forced to, so to speak, in the sense that they'd lose their job if they didn't. At the end, they do want a job, just like many of us, you know, are quite, we're quite happy to have something to do. So, so that's a really big, we, we see this in Italy that, we still see a lot of made in Italy product around, but the reality is for the less automated product, so garments, handbags, shoes, um, a lot of workers involved in those factories in Italy are not Italian. They're migrant workers either from North Africa or from China. They've been either legal or less legal ways that they've made their way to Italy and, and some are now Italian residents and, and others may or may not be. But the reality is the Italian manufacturing sector is somewhat, is largely reliant on this foreign workforce because, you know, Italian people are not dreadfully excited about working in <laughs> factories or at least doing the, the most line work. We certainly see them in the, the management side of factories and on the shop floor of factories in Italy. But the more manual the labor, the more basic the labor, the more you're going to see the likelihood of having um, foreign workers involved in that. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, as I'm saying, as you know, if they're in a, if they're treated properly and they have a legal right to work and all that sort of thing. But yeah, so those are two big answers. And then a third answer, which is a real challenge, um, in a way. So it's the first one was, you know, are people in these countries willing to do at least more of that manual labor work? Maybe we are. Maybe when you're treated well in the UK, you know, we see people working in warehouses. We see people taking those jobs in the UK. That's not necessarily very different to the work in a shoe or a garment factory. And we do have garment garment factories in the UK. We have them in Leicester, but they're largely staffed by a South Asian woman workforce in the South Asia, uh, so the Leicester garment factories. So, um, you know, that question of, of workforce, we it can, it can be done. And this is a bit like the food sector. People can be interested in a job when the conditions are good and the conditions are fair, which is why we do see some production in the UK, because those are the companies willing to pay those prices, which gets me to the price point. <laughs> Big challenge number two is, you know, is your company willing to pay the price for production in the UK? Now, I would argue that offshore production, you're not factoring in a lot of costs. You're not factoring and properly monitoring whether your suppliers are paying those workers abroad properly. So if you really started to factor this and you might start saying, oh, well, if we just did this back in, in the UK, a differential, we're not factoring in, you know, flying our staff out to those factories all the time to monitor them and, and all the negotiations with those suppliers. And then they shipped it late and then the shipment was wrong and the quality problems and all the stuff that happens in making stuff which I think some people listening to this who run business can probably relate to. But at the moment, the way we do financial sort of planning in business, we just go, oh, what was the, you know, the cost per piece? Boom. And we don't really factor in, let alone the environmental costs, of course, of the carbon footprint of shipping. So cost right now, you know, the wage differential between the UK minimum wage and the minimum wage in China or Vietnam or whatever is, is still significant. And without all that other factoring in, it looks nice. And then thirdly, the one I was about to say was raw materials, that um, we don't grow cotton in the UK. I don't think we do much on smeltering of metal, things like that. So China in particular has created this like 
access to immediate supply of the raw materials it needs. Fabric mills is a really interesting one. So, the, so there are a few fabric mills in the UK that are just nothing like what they used to be. If you think about the Industrial Revolution, it was it was you know cotton fabric mills in the UK a long time ago. Most of those have shut down. We see these gorgeous old <laughs> brick um, 100, 150-year-old buildings around the UK that were once a fabric mill perhaps. If we really want to onshore, we'd actually probably need to start opening some of them. But that maybe brings me to the circularity point, which is where, um, you know, the world of apparel, we're seeing this conversation on circular economy, which we need. And so if you think about people still throwing away garments at the end of use, which I mean, I hang on to stuff because like, I'm like, I, I, how do I recycle this? I don't want it going to landfill. <laughs> you know, just, what's the point of this piece of fabric, which for whatever reason I can no longer wear going to landfill when it can be a raw material for something else. So we are seeing innovation in circular here where European players are building or tweaking their production of fabric and saying that they can take in raw materials and produce it closer to home. You know, interestingly, with the Ukraine situation, the energy crisis and everything, you know, let's all use our voices for that shift to clean energy out of this crisis, that positive shift, because factories like that can run off clean energy. But you know, we all know that the structural, the policy structure is not there yet from our governments. And we need to raise our voices so that it becomes easier for business to make that shift to feeding in clean energy um, and being incentivized and supported as business to do that. What is the process for policy change? I'm not a politician, <laughs> but, you know, it's an area I'm learning myself. But my experience so far of trying to move more into policy change, because I got frustrated that I can do so much, I can try my best in one company, but at the end of the day, whatever that one company does is being undercut by the companies who are not required by law to do as good work. So I want to see all companies required to do the right thing on human rights in their supply chain and environmental, as we're saying. What is the process for policy? Is that a lot of us talking about what's needed, aligning, and then putting that out there and advocating for it is causing policy change. So, but we all know that what we need is that scale. And there's multiple ways we can get to the scale. One of them is, you know, push that solution out and everybody sees that concept and everybody realizes they need to make the shift. Other businesses also make those positive shifts. But in reality, really what we, I at least believe, causes much faster change where everybody um, moves, takes the step needed and what we call level the playing field is law. And so if we look at safety, you know, you don't need to think about which I don't know, for me, I'm in a co-work space today. Which co-work space has safe, you know, is, is going to be fire safe when I, when I operate on it and I choose one to work in here in Cornwall and Newquay? Because the law says that they all have to do it and everybody just does it. You know, and it's just, you don't even have to worry about it as a consumer. And that's the way it should be on you knowing that the clothing you buy, that they check that the suppliers are not polluting the water in the air. You know, it should be that the company you're buying from is required to check that. I was just 
um, thinking, you know, as a consumer um, who like in my, I guess my teens and my early 20s just used to love buying stuff and especially like sportswear and, you know, never really, it never even occurred to me to think about the supply chain because it just doesn't unless it's in front of you, you would never think to consider it. Yeah. And we all get out there and we just, I need some jeans today, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so where is kind of a good place for consumers to start, you know, to understand the situation or to be educated on terminology? I want to answer a question you didn't ask first, which is what can a consumer do? Which I'd say buy from charities if you, you know, as much as you can. But then if you want to look at the brand, you know, they don't have, let's say, sportswear is actually one I, I struggle, you know, charity shops don't really have, you know, secondhand sportswear is usually not quite what you need. They'll have other stuff that can be quite good. How do you become educated? It's a tricky question because there's a lot of different ratings and things out there good on you, but I can critique some of how they're missing a few of the points. There's Oxfam behind the brands. That's a fantastic one to follow, but they may not cover all the brands you have. Fashion Transparency Index. I've been involved in that over the years. That's a really good one. It covers about two or 300 brands these days. Only comes out once a year though. It covers the whole remit of environmental through to social human rights and everything. It doesn't look at a lot of smaller brands. It's looking at the world's top 300 or so apparel makers but it does some pretty rigorous work. Um, know the Chain is a US-based one that does very similar, and they're much more focused on modern slavery and exploitation. So as you're hearing, there's quite a lot of them, <laughs> and that's the challenge. And so, look, firstly, people are listening to a podcast like that, and that's a great, like this, sorry, today, and that's a great start. And I know you've had other podcasts that touch on some of these issues. So just keep learning what you can and hunting out, you know, follow the speakers who you had Mike Barry on the other day, people like us. We actually have a lot of conversations on LinkedIn these days, if you're somebody who's a LinkedIn user. And then organizations like Oxfam, Greenpeace, Some of Us, Global Citizen, they cover a wide range of issues, but I would say possibly up to maybe 10% of what they cover touches on brands that are in an apparel consumer kind of footprint. So getting their emails or following them on social media or whatever is a great way to stay up with at least what are the most hot issues to try to understand. But really, rather than having to know everything about companies, you don't necessarily need to think about it that way as a consumer or an advocate in the space. Really what you want to be doing is asking companies to do more. So you don't have to have the perfect question to them. You don't have to know the standards and all the initiatives I've been describing. Just your voice, be it responding on an Instagram post, sending an email, asking them on Twitter, whatever, saying, I hope you're making sure the workers who make these things are looked after, or I hope you're making sure your supply chain doesn't have pollution. Your voice saying any sort of question like that adds up. It helps make a difference. So if nothing else, and if you don't have time to get your head around all the, all the learning in this space, because this is why people like myself are full-time professionals on it, because there's just so many things. Don't worry about all that. Just keep it really simple and ask companies, especially companies you really care about, you know, I know you're doing some good stuff, but I want to see you do more. Or tell me more about where you make this. All of those questions absolutely cause companies to 
improve their efforts. And I wouldn't say like go from bad to good because it's not that simple, but keep up their efforts. And I would strongly encourage everyone to do that, especially if they know that you're their customer or their follower. Your voice is even more important than just that petition you might sign. Do sign the petitions and things, but please, you know, any of those. I went shopping for an outdoor bag today and I couldn't figure out, you know, tag, 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 which one of you does the most on environment? Tell me or something. I mean, make them compete for it. They want to. <laughs> Serious. You know, I've worked inside companies. We, your voice as the consumer to us is massive. And I think people don't realize that. They think their voice goes into an ether. You may not get, the company's not going to make the change immediately, but you might be quoted in the next PowerPoint to the CEO explaining the sustainability person saying why the company needs to do these things and, and really pushing for that budget and that business model shift even to, to get on with making those changes. How, you know, do people battle the cost of the living crisis with also wanting, you know, affordable goods and services that have ethical supply chains and, and production? Firstly, for environmental reasons and social, buying from charity shops is one of the best things you can do. You're stopping a product going into landfill. You're stopping it being shipped to Africa with all the emissions that that takes and where it may end up in another landfill. Yeah, okay, there's some stuff in there that's not great, but there's also some stuff that is great. And just get in and have a look before you go to buy something new somewhere. And then the second point on that is you're giving money to charities who are advocating for and driving the solutions, especially if it was Oxfam or someone like that. So that's the first thing you can do. You know, their products are often two, two pounds, three pounds, four pounds, five pounds. So, you know, it's a pretty budget way as well. Usually depends. These peer services online where you can buy vintage, secondhand, pre-loved, that's um, a way to keep, keep it lower priced as well, although not quite as cheap as charity shops. Then we get to the kind of question of, should I buy from Primark and H&M, I guess, in a way. Those companies have pretty huge ethical trade and sustainability teams these days. H&M have about 100 people. Um, I don't know the full number for Primark, but I know about eight people on that team. Those individuals are really dedicated to this work and work really hard on it. But we all know that the overall business model, you know, is still trying to shift out of sell lots of stuff to um, a more sustainable business model and they haven't nailed it yet. This is where I go back to that point on your voice counts. Just because you bought something from a way more expensive brand doesn't mean that they were more ethical. I've worked in the luxury sector. I, I'm proud of what we did. And if I was buying luxury fashion, which I don't usually, I would happily buy from the brand I used to work for because I know that they do some amazing work in, in the sector on environmental and social. But I know that a lot of other luxury companies don't and they're still charging a thousand pounds for a garment. And I've been in the factories making their garments um, a long time ago. And I know that now they're still not doing anything about all these issues. So just because something was luxury doesn't mean or was a thousand pounds or a hundred pounds doesn't mean that the environmental and social was done better than H&M or Primark, to be honest. <laughs> now, we know that there's an issue with underpricing. And, you know, we could say that. Primark making a garment for three pounds doesn't take into account the full cost of what it really would mean for a living wage for the woman who sewed that and for the environmental impacts. But unfortunately, when you buy from a brand that's at 20 pounds, there's no guarantee they paid that down to the supplier to pay the worker anymore. And it might have been made in the same factory. 
Um, the fabric might be better. The marketing might be better. You might get better service in a store. You don't have to queue up. <laughs> you know, you're, you're getting something you pay for. They may have better quality management. I'd come back to my point earlier and use your voice. If you, if your budget's tight and you're buying from a cheaper brand, or even if you're buying from a mid-range brand, one way or the other, buy what you need to buy and then send them a tweet or an email or say something on their Facebook page or wherever it is that you want to communicate saying, hey, I just brought your thing. I really hope that you're working to improve your environmental and human rights efforts because this is really important and I want to be feeling comfortable to come back to buy from you next time I need to buy something. If you try to do that every other time you buy, you'll be making a big impact and don't worry about what you're buying. And then, you know, to your point earlier, if you do hear of brands who are doing more on the sustainability front, try to remember them, <laughs> try to stay on top of them, try to support them, follow them on Instagram or something. And if you really do feel that they're, they're doing better efforts, then yeah, buy from them whenever you can. That shows them that, um, or it shows the whole industry, in fact, you know, Patagonia having the level of sales it does is a massive reminder to a lot of the apparel sector that, you know, striving to do the, the best you can environmentally and on the human rights front can really benefit you. And so a lot of other business leaders look at that and go, oh, maybe we should do a bit more. But you can't always buy Patagonia every day. And so when you can't, use your voice. Just to wrap up, what does downtime look like for you outdoors? Yeah, I love this because this was on my mind for the podcast. So I lived in China and Asia for 11 years and another two or three traveling significantly in and out of factories. I lived in Beijing when the air was black and every day you'd come home and have a shower and wash off and the water would be running black in the first rinse. Um, same in South China and Hong Kong. And this is one of the biggest reasons I left. And I moved to London, UK ancestry and my family here. And then London, yay, you can cycle everywhere. The tubes and buses are great. <laughs> the parks are beautiful. But oh my God, it's just another big city. And so I moved to Cornwall. So downtime for me, hiking the coast. And it's just a massive reminder why I'm doing this work. Because I want to see the air stay this clean. I know that if we're not careful, we can end up with that gray hazy. I mean, we have the haze in London. It's, it's, it's on a bad day. It's really bad. There are kids dying of asthma from it. And the water, you know, we, we know we have a water issue right now in the UK. And so downtime is that reminder. I used to hike a lot in Hong Kong. Um, I'd get in the forest. It was my Sunday church. It was beautiful. <laughs> the jungle was amazing. We do these, we did the trail walker 100k Oxfam hike. We did the 50ks and then you'd reach a peak and you'd look out over the city and you'd just see this massive cloud of haze and smog which was horrific and that would inspire me to get back in on Monday and push our China suppliers to join trainings on cleaner production and how to reduce their air emissions and um yeah downtime is I need to get back in the surf yay that we can <laughs> feeling super lucky and grateful and 
in remembering the people who make our stuff. I need to make a final call out that I, um, I've met Uyghur workers in forced labor in China. If you're hearing about that in the media, that is a real thing. Um, you know, use your voice on that too. Ask companies, what are you doing to make sure that your suppliers across China are not, um, complicit in Uyghur people being in forced labor and that genocide of those people? I know Uyghur people who haven't spoken to family for years. They don't know where they are. And so my downtime is grateful seeing my family and a reminder of, of why I'm up to this work and, you know, the privilege we have. I think it's important that we all remember that. Blue Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.